Welcome to a special discussion section edition of Economics Amplified. What is discussion section? A chance for Becker Freeman Institute co-chair Kevin Murphy to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and unpack their unique approach to solving real-world problems using economic science. Video highlights from each discussion can be found on our website, but the uncut version of each conversation appears here in our podcast feed. In this episode, Murphy talks with Eric Hurst of Chicago Booth to explore his perspective on possible common ground between macro and microeconomic perspectives and to evaluate labor market trends from the early 2000s, leading up to today on the employee side of manufacturing and housing industries. Eric. Well, it's really nice of you to stop by today and talk to us a little bit about economics. Thanks. Thank you. Well, let me start out by pointing out that you're a macroeconomist. So are you. Well, those are fighting <laughs> words where I come from, but, uh, you know, but you've done a lot of work that's really closely related to micro. And yeah. How do you see that fitting together? How does that work? I mean, I'll say the other way around. You've done a lot of work closely related to macro. I, we're interested in you know, very similar questions. Why people make consumption decisions, why people work. You know, we're talking right now about employment at the aggregate level, why it's so low. Is that, is that a labor economist who kind of studies that? Is that a macro economist who studies that? And I think we're all after the same type of questions. Okay, so forgetting whether you're a macroeconomist <laughs> or a microeconomist, a labor economist, and fundamentally you're an economist. Economist, exactly. Now, how does an economist approach these kinds of issues and, and you, you obviously can't speak for all economists but you can speak for yourself yeah. so how did you approach these issues i mean you want to try to understand a question that you think you care about at a minimum and maybe somebody else does as well and then you want to try to bring some sort of economic framework to potentially understand that question and then you want to try to bring some data to bear to kind of tease among the the potential mechanisms that you kind of think could be driving that so you know both you and I have thought about trends in employment. So why are people working? How is it moving over time? That's an important question. All right, right? Well, let's start with a, yeah, let's okay. start with a specific question. <laughs> a lot of people are interested in what's been going on since the recession. Okay. And you read, hear the news, you read the newspaper, you hear various discussions, even the policymakers yeah. talk about how the recovery in terms of employment has been yeah. disappointing. Yes. Constantly pointing to low job creation feature, uh, figures, the, you know, the fact that employment rate among groups of people, men, women, uh, haven't really been what people expected or what we've seen in prior recessions. What, is your, what can your research tell us about that? Yeah, so well, the discussion, you know, early on still today is about how much of this employment changes are cyclical. What do I mean by that? Due to the recession. We go to recession, employment goes down, recession gets over, employment goes back up. That's what's going on for most recessions over the last, you know, half a century or so, that same pattern. Do we, do we need a new economics to understand no. the new recession? Or? <laughs> no. Then the other side of the story is that maybe something structural is going on. So what do I mean by that? There's lower on trends that are kind of moving people, you know, in this case out of work, but other periods of time maybe into work. Okay, so, let me stop okay. you there for a second. Yeah. So, You've used two terms so far. Yeah. One is cyclical and yeah. the other is structural. Yeah. Can you, can you tell us a little bit? Of, those are economic terms. Yeah, tell yeah. them what, what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, you know, one kind of moves up and down with the economy. That's kind of what you mean by cyclical. That when things go into a, when the economy goes into a recession, things temporarily change 
when the recession is over, they kind of bounce back up. So that's kind of cyclical. There's a cycle to kind of variables like employment. So okay. people would call that the business cycle. The business cycle would be exactly that. Well, you're, okay. actually, you're actually in the employment cycle, which is part <laughs> exactly, of the business part cycle. part of the business cycle, exactly. Business cycles, usually we talk about things like how much countries produce. We're just now talking about how much people work, and those are highly correlated over you know long periods of time. When people produce less, they use less workers. When they produce more, they use more workers. Okay. So extreme versions of this would be the, the, the Great Depression, for example, yeah. where if we looked at something like GNP or output, yeah. there was a very substantial recession measured on output. Yeah. If you looked at employment or unemployment, yeah. the labor market was extremely weak during that yes. period of time. Yes. So might be, the other one perfect. might be 1975 yep. with the oil crisis or 1982-83. Exactly. Okay. 1990, there was a small one too. Uh, so yeah, when we have these recessions, employment falls when the recession's over. Year later, 18 months later, employment starts going kind of right back to where it was before, which is different in this case. I and mean, it is different in this case. So in this recent well, let recession, okay, let me push back on, that. Let me yeah. push back on yeah. that. You know, are you talking about unemployment or employment? Because even if we focus yeah. before this last recession, wasn't there some of these things going on already that had happened in the previous recessions that? Yeah. You know, we had gotten to a very low unemployment rate by the early 2000s, but the labor market really wasn't where it was in, say, 1968 and a lot of other respects. Yeah. We had a similar unemployment rate. Yeah, so I want to make sure, you know, this goes back to the other side of things. And I think we should distinguish between the two of them, okay? What still happened in 1990, the level of the unemployment rate was low relative to what it was in the 1960s. But in recessions, in the 1990 recession, the unemployment rate still went up and the employment rate still went down. And the difference between the two is the, the unemployment rate is, you know, people who don't have a job who are looking for a job. The employment rate just kind of measures who's working relative to who's not working. So it doesn't distinguish between who's looking for a job or not. And at most times, you know, during recessions, at this business cycle frequency you're talking about, the unemployment rate and the employment rate moved together. Every time the unemployment rate went up, the employment rate went down, okay? So fewer people are working than more people <laughs> are ended up unemployed looking, looking, for, looking work. for work. Exactly. Now the point you were saying is kind of the other side of the coin, which is both of these variables, both the unemployment rate and the employment rate, have had trends in them. And that's what I want to, you know, when we talked back a second ago, what does, you know, structural mean or secular kind of mean? It just means that there's trends in these variables over time. So there's wiggles that occur when we go into and out of recessions, but there's also trends over long periods of time. Like the unemployment rate in the US in the 1990s on average was lower than the unemployment rate in the US in the 1970s in recessionary periods and non-recessionary periods. It was just a trend over periods of time. So you know, the question that we you know, as a profession are trying to struggle with now is how much of the low employment rate that we're seeing now is due to the cyclical things. We just went through a recession and maybe we haven't bounced back out of that recession yet. And how much of it is due to the structural things, that there's just a trend going on and now we're just at a lower place in the employment rate than we did, did in the past. Okay, so let me, let me try to understand yeah. what you're saying. So we see this reality of employment growth has been relatively sluggish. Yeah. I mean, we'll tie in wage growth maybe yep. is also yeah, exactly. relatively yeah. sluggish. 
And some people say, well, this recession is just very different than past recessions. And let's think about that. The other thing is this is really a question that we want to think about as a cyclical phenomenon. It's all about recessions and how we respond to recessions generally and maybe this recession specifically. Yes. There's another approach, which is to say, what we're seeing here really isn't so much about the wiggles, the up and down, as to some longer term changes mm-hmm. that we've seen. Is yeah. that, that's a uh, perfect way to kind of put the two sides of the debate that's going on. Now, both, you know, people who believe that they're cyclical or believe that they're structural kind of point to facts in the data that the other one's hard to explain, such as, why did it all occur so suddenly at 2007, 2008, at the start of the recession, did we see such a big movement in the employment rate? If it's a story about trends, we should have seen things in 2005 or 2003 or 2001. So why is it so much at the beginning of the recession? So those are the people who believe that the cyclical kind of story might be the one that we should be thinking about. Then the structural people come back, or the more you know, trend type of the story, and say, why is it so persistent? You know, the recession's been over for you know, six years now five and a half years. So why haven't we seen a rebound in the uh, employment rate? Now, the unemployment rate has gone down, okay? but the employment rate has not. Now, how do you reconcile those in your head? It's the people who've left the unemployment roles haven't left because they found a job, they've left because they've stopped looking for work. So when you take a look at, you know, prime age, that's a kind of fancy word, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and early 50s, and ask, you know, how many of them worked before the recession? And then how many of them worked after the recession? That number has fallen by about six or seven percentage points for both men and women and has not rebounded much at all. So among men, for example, in that age range, what would have been before and what is it now? So for men who are, you know, let's distinguish between those with some, you know, four-year college education and those without, okay? So the men without a four-year education Prior to the recession, you know, I would say about 85% of them worked. At a point in time. At a point in time, at a given point. Now, not, not always, but just in, if we randomly took 100 of them um, from, from the data in 2007, 85 of them would have been working. So if I just went this week and said, this week, what fraction of those non-college graduate men in the ages yep. you're talking about yep. would have been working it would have been an 85 85% uh, in two, 2007. It's currently now 78%. So that is the seven percentage point decline in the propensity. And it was, you know, 70, you know, six percentage point at the peak of the, re- the recession, 2010. So we've kind of only increased very slightly during this period. This is a staggering number. I mean, you and I have talked about this before, that one in four, roughly one in four yeah. men uh, without a four-year college degree in working ages, 21 to 55, do not work. And that is, a, that is a strong number, and it's not getting better. So even though the unemployment rate has come down for this group, the employment rate has not because these people have stopped looking for work. Yeah, and, and, and the key here is we, we sometimes see, and in recessions we do see, very sharp increases in unemployment and sharp decreases in yep. employment for these groups. Yep. But historically, we've tend to see them rebound as well, Together. coming out of the recession. Exactly. So that's the point that the people who think there's something else amiss in the labor market, kind of maybe a 
kind of a trend story or some other type of story that we need to think about is point to this breakdown that even five years after the recession, the unemployment rates come down like it does after every recession, okay? This time it took a little longer, but it came down. But at the same time, the employment rate did not come back up. And so how do you get the persistence if you're a person who believes it's all due to the recession? And how do you get the start, stark break at the start of the recession if you believe it's a trend? Okay. And those are the kind of things I've been so thinking about. So let's talk about what's been going on in the labor okay. market that you think is important to understand if we're gonna to try to answer this question yes. for why employment growth, particularly employment growth for less educated right. men, let's focus yep. on men, we'll come back in a bit and talk about women yep. and, and maybe more educated men, but yep. let's focus on less educated, low-skilled men. What's been going on in the labor market over the last 20 years, plus years, yep. whatever you wanna focus on yep. that helps us understand that. Yep. So I'm more of the belief that there might have been this secular trend, the structural story in the background uh, of this recession. So what is it for me that, that I've been focusing on? So, you know, in, I'll just give you a number now. In 2000, there were about 18 million manufacturing jobs in the United States, okay? okay. By 2004, that number was about 14 million. So in a relatively four year period, we lost about four million manufacturing jobs. So this is, this is remember, just yeah. to make sure people yep. remember the dates, this is pre-recession. Pre -recession. This is actually the early year. We're not even at the end of the boom yet. Yeah, not even at the end of the boom yet. We've got 2000 to 2004, yeah. while the economy is generally going up over yeah. that period, we're seeing the number of manufacturing jobs fall from 18 million to 14 million. 14 million, yeah. And you think to yourself, why is that important? Well, for this group that you and I have been talking about, these lower skilled okay, men without a four-year college degree, which is about 70% of the men in this age group, about 30% of us roughly have a four-year college degree, about 70% of us have less than a four-year college degree, might have some college, might have a high school degree, might be a high school dropout. So of that group, historically, okay, historically about, you know, I would say somewhere around 20 to 25% of them worked in manufacturing. So this is a big sector for this group. And so as those jobs go in away, there's been a part of their labor market that has shrunk. Now, normally when parts of labor market shrunk, something happens. People move to other sectors maybe. People maybe stop working depending upon the wage that they earn relative to you know, the benefits they get of not working. So that happens. Now the question they come back is say, well, why didn't this show up in employment numbers prior so, to, yeah. the, to, to, to the recession? Why didn't it just show up as four million people, fewer people working? Exactly, yeah. it's perfect. At the same time, there was another important shock that hit these lower skilled men in these prime ages that we've been talking about that might have offset that structural decline, this decline in manufacturing. And that's the housing market was really booming during this time period and construction jobs went through the roof. And for these low skilled men, the same group we're talking about, historically about 10% of them worked in construction, maybe 11%. That number went up to 15, 16, 17% by 2006. So you got this one trend that might be more permanent. Manufacturing jobs are disappearing from the U.S. economy. So that, and that wasn't new. That had been going nope, on been before going on. this? It's, it's going on before this, 
it's, it happened, the magnitudes are actually bigger in the 2000s than the ones we might have lost in the 80s. And the ones we lost in the 80s happened, you know, gradually. Okay, this happened in a relatively short period of time. We could talk about way, maybe why in a few minutes, why, why manufacturing contracted so sharply in the 2000s and continued to contract. Might not be unrelated to the housing boom, but we'll, we'll <laughs> no, come back yeah, to that yeah. later. It but. might not be, but there are other stories. Yeah, we'll come back to that later. So the key part of this is that as those jobs went away, a sharp, a large amount of them went away in, in, in the 2000s, you had another shock that ex post was temporary, that construction jobs boomed in the US economy. We were well above long run trends in how many houses we were building, how many plumbers we were having, how many electricians we were um, hiring in the economy. And that helped helped the word I use, I don't know, I like this word, sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't, but masked the, the decline in manufacturing employment. So when you look at aggregate statistics, you have one sector that's kind of, kind of in decline, you have another sector that temporarily boomed above trend and then potentially went back to, to trend, and during that boom period, when you look at aggregate statistics, it's kind of a wash, not exactly a wash. Employment rates were declining slightly from 2000 to 2001 to 2002, but nowhere near the, 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 the change we saw in 2007. So we had, we had two <laughs> conflicting things yep. going on from the point of view of the strength of the yep. labor market for less educated male, men in particular. Yep. We had shrinking manufacturing sector. Yes. That was cutting back on employment opportunities for these men. But at the same time, we had this housing boom going yes. on, which was making the labor market for them stronger. Yes. And to a large extent, let's say they offset. Perfect. So that this long-term trend, which might have otherwise you know, shown up during that period, didn't because it was being hidden, your word yes. masked, yep. by what's going on in, 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 in construction. Now, and I think you, this is what you alluded to, but let's try to play it out a little bit further. The decline in those manufacturing jobs, I think we should regard largely as permanent. Yeah. That was not like, well, some temporary things were going on. We didn't need as many manufacturing jobs, but guess what? Tomorrow we're going to need them again. Yeah. Yeah. I think we think that you know, whether it's China, whether it's whatever forces yeah. you want to talk about, even maybe just changes in technology. Both of those are the ones on the table, exactly. But whatever it was, those are not coming back. Exactly. Now, the construction boom, as you alluded to a moment ago, is more likely to be a temporary phenomenon. Yes. I mean, it's not only turned out later to be a temporary <laughs> yeah. phenomenon, it almost by its very nature has yeah. to be a temporary phenomenon. You can't keep building houses at the rate we were building them then. When the population isn't growing or exactly. So yep. at that point, you would say the seeds of what was going to come later had already yep. been sown. Exactly. Okay, so we've gone to 2004 yep. now. This yep. is, the recession's not even... Not even coming yet, exactly. But you're it, telling us we should have seen it coming. Yeah, and I'll tell you how we could have seen it coming which is easy to say ex post, but maybe how we could have seen ex ante in a second. But I just want to continue the story now, is that you go to 2007, the housing boom collapses, and all those construction jobs- so what about jobs 04 to 07? What happens in that period? Everything, you know, the housing, you know, keeps going a little, manufacturing stabilizing. So this is what you're saying, the wiggles. So if you look at 00 to 04, employment rates kind of dipped a little bit. 04 to 07, they kind of went up a little. 
00 to 07, that's kind of where things were were roughly constant during this so period. So 04 to 07, we have not such big trends, but again, yeah. not such a big pot, but still relative to when we started in 2000. If I go yeah. 2000 Duh. to 2007, yeah. I have a period that wasn't good for manufacturing. It lost a lot early and yeah. it maybe leveled yeah. out. Construction boomed early yeah. and it maybe leveled yeah. out. But over the full period, we still have the same story. Exactly. That we've had this permanent exactly. decline in manufacturing opportunities, job opportunities for low-skilled yeah. men, offset to a large extent by this, what needs to be, and all later turns out to be temporary increase yeah. in demand for low-skilled men generated by the housing boom. Yes. Okay. Now yeah. we are in 2007. 2007, housing boom collapses, or bust, or pick your favorite word, goes back to trend, whatever it is. Housing prices collapse, and at that moment, we stop building houses. So construction employment falls from 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. And what happens to manufacturing? Continues its decline. So 07, 08, 09, 010, manufacturing, we lost another two to two and a half manufacturing, two and a half million manufacturing jobs from 07 to 10 as well. But that's not surprising. No. That we've been losing manufacturing exactly. jobs. Concentrated in recessions and that they haven't come back. Okay, but let, yeah. let's be clear yeah. here. So the trends that used to be offsetting yeah. are now exacerbating. Exasperating each other, exactly. So then you get this kind of flat line and then from 07 to 10, construction goes back to, to trend. So you lose you know, two and a half, three million construction jobs. You lose um, another two and a half, three million manufacturing jobs. And the labor market opportunities for low-skilled men suddenly are unveiled to be very weak. But isn't there more than just an unveiling? And let me try to yeah. play yeah. it out a little bit. That is, one story is we are where we would have been in say 2010 yeah. had there not been this boom. Yeah. And what was going on is we masked it for yeah. a period of time. But isn't there another side of it, which is the housing boom generated Less, menu, less construction employment after the fact than it would have if the boom hadn't occurred. Yeah, that because we've interteporally switched from you know building houses. We built too, many, too many houses, houses early relative to to, to late. Exactly. The fact yep. that we built so yep. many during the boom, yep. then we build even fewer yes. than we otherwise would have. So that's actually beyond just masking. Yeah, that's on top of it. Exactly. And yep. that has means that conditions for these men are just as bad in manufacturing mm -hmm. as they would have been. Yep. They're worse yep. because of the boom. Yep. So not only did the boom hide what happened, yep. it exacerbated what yep. happened later. And you can see that the story that, you know, the, the added on of building too many houses and a little bit lower construction, you might think is inherently temporary. In a couple of years, depreciation kicks in, some of those old houses that we built extra of kind of depreciate away, and those construction jobs might come back at some point. There's no evidence that these manufacturing ones are coming back. So even if we take out another five, seven years in the future, nothing is telling us that manufacturing jobs, or especially manufacturing jobs for low-skilled men, are going to be coming back during that time period. But maybe, you know, the depreciation of mm -hmm. uh, the, the housing stock occurs, we start building some construction going forward. Question, yeah. question for you. Yep. I mean, we built up a lot of extra housing stock. Yeah. Uh, during that period where we built a lot and had a booming construction industry, 
has that recovery from the post-crash construction, have we pretty much worked off the excess housing stock that we had? Is this is yeah, that temporary effect that yeah, we just talked a, about kind of worked yeah. itself out? In most markets, not all markets all the time. You still see in some of the places you would have heard about the news, Las Vegas, there's still a little bit of slack in those. But in many markets now, you've kind of worked through a big chunk of that extra slack in the housing market. And you're starting to see now housing construction and housing prices perform like they would in what I'll call normal times. That's a hard word, what is it, normal time? But think about that, you know, you know, 97, 98, 99, before the housing boom started. Okay, so yeah. let, me, let me just make sure yeah. I understand and, you know, people yeah. understand what's going on then. So now let's go 2000 to today. Yep. The housing, let's call it the construction industry, is about where it would have yep. been had there we not gone through this boom bust cycle. Yep. So it's not worse than it would have been. It's about where it would have been. But manufacturing is still got that cumulative decline over this full yes. period. Yes. And so what you're saying is if I want to understand 2000 to 2015, the ultimate story is about what's been going on in, say, manufacturing or these broader secular trends that you've yes. been talking about. Yes. So I want to tell you one about how, do I, how, do I, how would you even conjecture this in the data? What can the data kind of speaks to this? And then I want to do one other thing, which I just want to say something you and I haven't talked about you know, before, but if you just take the sum of the, the non-employment rate plus manufacturing share, how many of men are in this, you know, less than a four-year college degree, 21 to 55, how many work in manufacturing, and the share of them work that con in construction and plot that from 2000 to 2015 over this period. Okay, so this would be manufacturing, construction, and not working at all. That um, roughly describes about half, just a little under half, about 48% of all men in this group, and it's been relatively stable from 2000 to 2015. So, so one theory, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, maybe it's not the right story, yeah. it would be a theory that says, Basically, we've just what we did is we took the guys who would have been in manufacturing construction and moved them to yeah. non-employment out of the labor market, yeah. so they're not working. Yeah. And but let me let me push on that just yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Well, but construction hasn't really changed very much over that long period, has it? It did. I mean, I mean, oh right, no, no, oh, no beginning, the, the yeah, beginning the end, it's right back. It's about eleven percent. Of, of this group of men working that in 2000, about 11% are working okay. in 2015. So this so, is all manufacturing. So let me, let me yeah, exactly. So but let, me, yeah. let me try to play this out a little bit. So your insight of looking at the world saying you can't ignore construction and men, they're both yeah. important parts of the story, yeah. are really important for understanding kind of how we got from where we started to where we had the path right. we took. Yep. Exactly. and why it shows up as something that looks so cyclical, yeah. even though in your story it's really very secular or yeah. trend-driven. Yeah. At the end of the day, construction probably takes a very much a backseat to manufacturing yep. is driving this. Yep, from the 00 to 2015, yes. Okay. And so, you come, so how do you test this? So you know, these are all just the descriptive data you could look at. It kind of makes sense when you kind of talk about it, but you gotta go further. I mean, so, I could tell you what we do to kind of shed some light that this 
story isn't that crazy. I mean, the data wants to speak to it. That's what we talked about early on. You got a theory, you have some hypotheses, you should show some kind of data that kind of says, eh, it doesn't sound crazy, but you gotta, you gotta test things a little bit um, you know, more formally. So it's your data, your, your hypothesis in a large sense was driven by the data, exactly. I take it. You exactly. didn't sort of no. become a theorist sitting in your office and no. say, oh, here's a great theory, yeah. let me go find the data and exactly. test it. You started with these aggregate exactly. trends and exactly. saying, how do I understand what I've seen? And not just the post-recession period, yeah. the pre-recession yeah. period. So you're saying, okay, that's where I yeah. started. I build a theory that I understand that's consistent with economics, it's not like some new no. theories. No, 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 no. This is exactly this is Everything labor demand, labor supply. Yep, exactly. This is the you know the core of economics. Yeah. Labor demand and supply stuff you've been doing for decades before well, I started. I don't know. A lot of people have been doing it long before me. But anyway, that but we're gonna we have that, and so now you're saying okay, fine and dandy, but there might be a million other theories that fit yeah. the data. So you, now you're saying how do I make sure yep. this is exactly. quote the right story exactly. So what did you do? So you tried to, you know, in the U.S. it's kind of nice because different locations in the U.S. have different amounts of manufacturing mix and had different amounts of housing boomness. So <laughs> I don't know, that's, that's, a, that's, my word. <laughs> that's a technical word. <laughs> so when you're thinking about places like Detroit, which is heavily manufacturing based, and you look at the data in Detroit about not the aggregate employment rate, but the employment rate for Detroit, okay? And you look at the employment rate from Detroit from 2000 to 2004, when these manufacturing jobs were going away, and you see the employment rate in Detroit plummet during that time period, okay? In other places like Detroit, you had very similar patterns, Dayton, Ohio, or you know, Worcester, Massachusetts. There's lots of places around the country that have strong manufacturing bases that lost a lot of manufacturing jobs in the pre-period. So you're saying they're like Detroit in the sense that they were very heavily manufacturing heavily. dependent. Exactly. Okay. So you see those places and you see those manufacturing jobs go away 2000 to 2004 and you see employment rates plummet. Employment rate went up a lot and then those people left the labor force and eventually employment rates were really low well before the recession started. So if you go in the data and you take a city like Detroit, you say, man, Detroit got hit with a really bad recession from 2000 to 2004, and the employment rate has never recovered. And that is a period in which nationally, employment rates exactly. are doing okay. Exactly, and so how does that work? Well, then you go to another place, like Las Vegas, okay, or Phoenix. What do we know about those places? They had really large amounts of housing activity during this period. Some of it showed up in prices, but a lot of it showed up in construction. They were building like crazy. And the employment rate in Las Vegas and Phoenix during this time period was booming relative to historical trends. There was most of these men that we were talking about, you know, 21 to 55 with less than a college degree, the employment rate for them wasn't like 85% in the national average, it was like 90%. There was tons of them working. No one was sitting on the sidelines. So when you average together the Las Vegases with the Detroit, you get that kind of aggregate trend. But when you disentangle the places that were hit with manufacturing, just manufacturing shocks, it looks like the recession started well before 2007. In those places, 2003, 4, 5, looked like really, really weak labor markets. 
um, even though it didn't show up in the aggregate so, level. So your theory is I have, in the aggregate, my, your interpretation of the data is during, let's focus on oh, 2000 yeah. to 2004, that the growth in construction is basically canceling out the decline in manufacturing, yes. leading to very little effect on the strength of the labor market for this yeah. group. You'd say, well, how do I test that? I'm gonna find places where either the housing boom was much stronger or the manufacturing decline was much weaker. Or because, both. Or both, <laughs> both that's yep. where they started. Yep. And seeing whether my story holds together because my story would be, well, they cancel on average across the country, they don't cancel out location by location. Yeah. And you see it in the day. It screams it, the data scream it. So if I just made a graph or something yep. that would show one against the other, yep. predicted yep. versus actual, yep. the, uh, the standard test of a theory. What do yep. I think? Yep. What does my theory say? What do the data say? It's super strong. Super strong. Exactly. It, it kind of feels right in your gut. If you're talking to people who were in Detroit in 2004, you say, hey, you feel this national boom? They're like, no. You know, <laughs> you know, for them, wages were low, employment rates were low, well before the recession ever started. And you talk to the guy in the street in Las Vegas, say, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, I'm doing so good, I was thinking about going to school, and now I'm not even going to school, which is something right. we could talk about in a, in a little while, about how this housing boom might have shaped um, people's human capital decisions. But yeah, the, the data kind of scream that this has been going on in the background, which again, when we're thinking about policy going forward, about trying to say, you know, why is the employment rate mm -hmm. so low? Is it because, you know, the economy, there's some friction where we're still in a recession that we got to clear out? Or if it's something more, you know, structural, I believe, and I believe the data say, there's something more structural going on, and you know, the policies we might want to think about as a country are very different between those two stories. Okay, now let me, let me push a little bit just so I make sure we understand. So in Las Vegas, is it just the construction workers who are doing well and working more, or is it more broadly low-skilled, less-educated yeah. workers across the economy? That's a great question, and your conjecture that it's more than just construction workers is 100% correct. So when the construction sector is booming or the housing market's booming, lots of other sectors kind of boom as well. You got a little more money in your pocket, maybe you spend a little bit more at a restaurant, those type of stories go on. So what you could see in the data is that when employment rates went up in places like Las Vegas, for the men, a lot of them went into the construction industry. So in some sort of decomposition, if you're going to say the total amount of change in the employment rate relative to the total amount of construction jobs, you could see about 80% of the increase in employment rate for men was when in these construction jobs. So it's 20% some other sectors. But for the women, they don't normally work in construction, but their employment rates went up a lot as well. Some of those were in housing-related industries, but a lot of them were in just other you know, retail and service type of sectors populated by people with lower skill. And both of those kind of lifted in this market. So it's more than a construction story. It's like the whole local labor market was hotter in places that were um, having these construction housing booms. In the manufacturing declines, the whole local labor market, not only in manufacturing, but the whole labor market in Detroit, manufacturing, shopkeepers, haircutters, restauranters, 
were all um, relatively depressed compared to their own trend in other places that didn't have that manufacturing decline. So we now have these effects, which are maybe driven by these sector-specific yeah. things like the housing boom or the decline in manufacturing, have now spread themselves out to affect the whole economy, not yeah. just yeah. those narrow sectors. Yeah. Now, you alluded to a moment ago that this also might affect the economy going forward. That yeah. is, having gone through this cycle, so let, let, me, let me review what we mean by the cycle. We've gone through really two parts. We went through this early period where we had this housing boom, which changed how people, what people did in terms of work and the like. And then we've gone through this recession. Yeah. How does that affect us from now yeah. forward? Are we, are we, oh, is it all behind us? Is it all no. just history? I mean, there could be potential many channels where it might not be behind us yet. And we could talk about some of the other ones in, in a few minutes that I've been thinking about. But one I have thought about was, you know, people's schooling decisions. So from work way, you know, going back, some stuff you were working on uh, back in the 80s, when, when you know, opportunities are relatively low for low-skilled workers. Wages are low for low-skilled workers relative to high-skilled workers. There's an incentive to go and accumulate some human capital, to get skill, to move from one labor market to another. So if the returns of being skilled is high, you're more likely to go and get skill. And you know, that's been occurring. That's how we've dealt with you know, moving from agriculture to manufacturing, manufacturing you know, to services, from services to high-skilled service. People have been getting more skilled o over, over time. And what the housing boom did, and I'll tell you how we kind of show this in a little while, is it raised the opportunity cost for somebody Whoa, to go get minute. to school. You're using too big a word. Yeah, I'm saying, so let's, yeah I'll, I'll tell you what I mean in a second by opportunity cost. Okay, I'll come back and tell it, it basically, in order to go get some schooling, you had to stop working in construction or in the, the, the other industries in your local labor market that are paying you a pretty high wage and are hiring you um, at a pretty high rate. So you, you, you mean to tell me there's this guy he was going to be a heart surgeon, no. and he decided <laughs> to go work no, in construction no. because it was this temporary construction no. boom? No, Come I'm on. Going to tell you, no, I'm going to tell you, it's not the heart surgeon margin of adjustment. But there was a guy who was thinking about maybe going to be an orderly in a hospital or a technician in a local tech company that needed to go and get a, you know, a couple of years of schooling at a potential community college, who is now deciding maybe I'll go work construction or I'll go work in, you know, whatever the local labor market that was relatively booming for that person. And um, at the cost of going to school today. So let me just give it in data. So, and we so can come basically back I'm deciding, I graduated from high school. Yeah. I'm probably not going to a four-year college. You're not going to be the hard scourge. Maybe uh, not going to be the hard I didn't get into Harvard yeah. so, or even Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get in, you know. So it's, but we're not even talking that margin. Yeah. We're saying I, I'm a guy who's probably not going yeah. to a four-year school. But that doesn't mean I'm not going on to school. Yeah. I'm thinking about my options. If the construction industry is booming, that may be an opportunity that's available to me. Yeah. And I might say, hey, that beats... Going to going to the junior college or going to some proprietary school or doing something, exactly. and therefore fewer of them going to go to school. When exactly. the people in that situation 
when the construction industry is stronger, more going to go into construction. Yeah. Same would have been true, of course, if manufacturing had been exactly. stronger. They would have exactly, exactly, or fracking was strong in you know North Dakota, or oil is North. Dakota. The same type of stories kind of to happen. So now, when I've looked at this in the past, I've found that people are quite responsive to these kinds of incentives, and it sounds like you're finding the same. Yeah, you'll thing. be shocked. I'm finding the same type of thing because these incentives matter. So these in the data, these types of things happen. So let me tell you how, what I could do. And then you could come and say, I'm going to use that same variation now between places that had these types of housing booms, the Las Vegases and the Arizonas, and okay. compare those to places that didn't have the housing boom. Now, some of those were in you know, Detroit, which had other bad shocks, which might have sent people to school, and other places had neither, okay. Orlando. So let me, yep. let, me, let me try to yep. understand what you're doing here. So you're going to say, look, let's, let's ignore manufacturing for the moment. Let's yep. focus on the housing boom. Yep. I have some cities where there was a housing boom, yep. and if there's a housing, when you can measure that yep. by what's going on with housing construction, yep. all those things, that shows up as a boom in construction employment. Yep. Okay. And other sectors, as we already talked about. And other about. sectors. Yep. There's a boom in the labor market, let's say, disproportionately for low-skilled yep. workers relative to what it otherwise yep. would have been. And I compare those to places that didn't have exactly. the same size or no housing boom, ideally. Exactly. And then you looked at the fraction of people going on to school. Exactly. And what do you find? You find that in those places that had these booms, the Las Vegas is now, the propensity for these young individuals, both men and women, to go to college slowed down relative to trend for women, and for men, actually got lower. So the fraction of men in the labor market in Las Vegas in 2004, relative to the cohort in Las Vegas of men in 1998, the 2004 you know, individuals went to school less. Not only not as much as they would have, because there's been trends in these data for a long so period of time. So over time, what you're saying yeah. is over time, what we've tended to yeah. see is it's, that the fraction going on to school yeah, has been going, going up. up. And that's yeah. been going on for 100 years. 100 years. So the fraction of yep. people going on has been tending to go yeah. up. But in these places yeah. where we had a housing boom, over this period of time, yeah. the fraction of people going on to school was actually going down. Going down. Exactly. That's pretty shocking. That's pretty, and I'll leave it at the aggregate level, if you go back and look yeah. at this period, I mean, this stuff you've been talking, when you look at these men, it's one of the few periods, and you might know another one from here, where we had a seven years at the aggregate level, where aggregate When you say aggregate, you mean national. National. The whole country as a whole was essentially flat in the propensity to, to go to college. Now, it's not, again, as you said, it's not the four-year guys. The four-year people are trending like they've always been trending. It's the you know, community colleges and trade schools actually got lower during the, this period, um, flat as an aggregate level at the national level, but in places like Las Vegas actually declined. So these are, and those are the groups you would expect to be most affected by the construction exactly. boom. So exactly. this construction boom masked the declining yeah. unemployment of, for these groups yeah. and actually prevented it from happening for a period yeah. of time, induced more individuals to work rather than go to school. Yes. Kind of a classic economic trade-off of, yeah. should I go to school or should I work? So yeah. actually more people end up working. Yeah. Then, okay, now the recession hits. Did all those people just run back and go to school that nope. would have gone to school before? Nope. 
So you could track the people who were at school age, 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 22-year-olds in 2000, and kind of go see what they're doing when they're, you know, 20 years older, you know, 28, 10 years older, 28, you know, 30, 33 in 2010, 2012, 2000 today. Um, and what you'll see is those people don't go back. Very few percent go back. Now, new 20-year-olds are going to school in 2015 in Las Vegas like they did when they were in 2000, including, you know, even a little bit of trend. So, employ, you know, schooling rates are starting to tick back up from new young people going. But these old, older cohorts now, these older people who are 30, not, 35. They're not old, but not, not I'm, I'm ancient if that's no, no, old. No, Again, I'm, I'm, I'm old relative to that. But older relative to where they were aren't going back. And there's stories people tell of why that is. You know, it's, going to school means you stop working. Okay, some of them might not be working now, but those that are, you know, they might have got a family, got a wife, got a kid. It's harder to go back to school when you're 30 or can be harder when you're 30 relative to 20. So, I mean, I mean, it, the fact that the 20-year-olds are going back may be one of the reasons these guys aren't going back. That's that, true. that, you know, they're, they're in a much yep. better position. Yep. That's people, what perfect. yep, that's a true story, too. You know, so, but let's think about it. Yep. So, uh, for these cohorts, mm -hmm. that is the groups that were making that school versus work decision, mm -hmm. And who are on that margin, who are on that, what we call an economic, so people on the margin, people yeah. who are deciding between college of some type mm -hmm. and going directly into the labor market, mm -hmm. were drawn in by the housing boom. Mm -hmm. And we can see that in their school attendance figures during the boom. During the boom. And now those cohorts from those areas are going to have less education looks like for the rest of their lives. Yes. And that means us as a country are going to have a less educated workforce while they stay, you know, in the in 30s, 40s, 50s to when they would have moved to, to, to retirement um, going forward. Now, some of those younger cohorts, though, might be even more educated than they would have been because yeah. the housing boom, the housing bust was so... Yeah, it's so big. exactly. That sent it back in. Exactly. So then you have a potentially, and then you have to kind of see you know, what effect this, and we haven't done this yet, is trying to think what effect would this have on growth going forward, taking into account those two margins of having one group that's kind of more educated than it would have been otherwise, and this other group that might have, you know, which we know is less educated than they would have been otherwise, and how that translates to just general human capital for the country as a whole, how much schooling the country as a whole has, and how that feeds back into, you know, how productive we are as a country. Okay. You know, with the belief that more human capital might affect our, our productivity. Now, I realize you can't just go to the, the, the local levels kind of give us directionally yeah. the right answers, but they don't always translate exactly, exactly over to the aggregate level because one way to think about it, at least the way I would think yeah. about it, is, you know, Las Vegas gets a boom, yeah. Well, they can bring in lots of people from exactly. elsewhere and activity exactly. that would have been elsewhere can move to Las exactly. Vegas. For the national economy, that kind of We don't see mass migration to Canada. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's a lot more movement from Texas to Las Vegas or Las Vegas to Florida than there is from the U.S. as a whole to Canada. 
So we have to yeah, kind of exactly for your results, yeah. but they still should yeah, go and the I think right it's way. important. Yeah, and so we could do a lot of stuff in the paper, especially the people moving. We could actually, with enough data, you could track who's moving where, yeah. and then you could adjust for that. But you know, we've talked about this before in the research that you were doing, that I do, exploiting this local variation. Many people take kind of estimates they get from this local variation and automatically assume that's the same you would get if the country as a whole got shocked. But that's, theory tells you that shouldn't be the case because, you know, it's easier to adjust people, but also goods, also where machines go between California and uh, Nevada relative to moving between the U.S. and England or the U.S. and China. Not to mention, it was a worldwide recession. So exactly. I mean, unless you're going to Mars or something, you really can't do all those exactly. things. So, and, but that's something we all, as a profession, you know, should be thinking harder about. And you know, some of us are trying to kind of formalize you know, how that, that, um, that differences kind of play out in the data. Well, let me, let, me, let, yeah. let me then try to step back a little bit, even beyond the particular issues you're studying, because it seems to me it's becoming clear from this discussion kind of what the approach you have yeah. is that I look at what seems to be an unusual phenomenon, mm -hmm. which is this slow recovery mm -hmm. since the recession. And, but ultimately, I'm able to explain it in terms of very standard elements of economics. Yeah. That is, things that you know, we all think are an important part of things. And is, is that fair to say that that's kind of what you're, how you think yeah. about I think that's a lot of things that happens in economics? It's like, it seems new and it seems different, yeah. but once you've studied it long yeah. enough, you realize yeah. it's the same old thing. Exactly. It's a, you know, exactly. People respond to incentives. You know, there's, there are things that look like demand out there, and there's things that look like supply out there. And when you put this framework down there, many, not, not everything, I don't want to overstate my claim, but much of what people kind of would say, this is puzzling or this is perplexing, if you think about it, can usually be put in you know, standard economic principles and then people respond to incentives and you know, make decisions that look like they would do if they were trying to make themselves happy and firms are trying to make themselves some money and you put that kind of stuff together and you know, that usually explains kind of the world uh, that we're looking at. And I, I do believe that is kind of something that would be, if I had a hallmark of my work, I would say most of it falls into that. If not all of it falls into that, that type of style. Okay, so we'll, we'll go back. So I mean, the keys, the way you see it, is that think about the world as a market and how markets function. Yeah. So a growing construction market is going to have certain implications for what's yeah. going to happen in the world. A declining market in manufacturing is going to have other implications. Mm -hmm. The other is incentives matter when mm -hmm. I try to explain people's behavior. Yeah. If their wages go up, they're going to respond in certain ways. If their wages go down, they're going to respond in other ways. Um, so I think you join a long tradition of Chicago economists and economists elsewhere yeah. who've yeah. made a lot of hay with that seemingly simple approach to the world. Okay, um, so that's I, I, I like that. Obviously, this is kind of the way I think I like to think about economics, but. Let's talk about some of the ideas that you're 
more exploring. Yeah. They, you've talked to yeah, me so far about the things you've successfully <laughs> done in yeah. the past, things you yeah. have identified and help us understand things. So let me tell Give you me things some stuff I'm, you're thinking about. Yeah, I'll tell you the things that you know I've been thinking about. Thinking about might be you know. I'm definitely thinking about, but maybe struggling with okay. <laughs> would be another another potential approach to it. So, you know, we've had this discussion, you and I, privately before, but manufacturing has been declining for a long period of time in the U.S. So we talked about that Not earlier. Not always evenly. Not but always evenly, but it's been go, going down for a little while. Well, not for a little while, for... You know, 40 years. We talked years about ago. it back 70s. in the 70s. 70s, exactly. 70s, the decline. Yeah. So why is it so recent? When you look at the employment rates of these, again, young men, and we didn't even talk about this. Yeah, I, I, I showed you some pictures a, a, a couple of weeks ago. But when you take a look at 21 to 25-year-olds, 21 to 28-year-olds, people, again, who normally have a, Pretty strong attachment to the labor force. Not exactly. They're usually either working or going to school. We are working or going They're to school. They're somehow exactly. active exactly. with a labor market in mind. Exactly. Either they're going to school yeah. and ultimately probably yeah. going to work, or they're actually working today. Yep. So okay. going back to these numbers that we were talking about. So people who don't have a four-year degree yet. Okay. Who are now in their early 20s. So let's call them 21 to 25. Prior to the recession, 2007, about, I would say, 76% of them were working. Some of them were in school. So you add in the 5 or 6% of them that are in school or 7% at that point getting some sort of training, maybe not full-time mm -hmm. school, not at Harvard, but yeah. going to community college and stuff. That kind of adds up to what you were saying before about normally about 85% of them are, are, are working. So 75% of them are working, 2007. That number currently... 63%. It is shocking. And then you say, okay, Eric, well, you just told me some of these guys are going back to school. And I said, fair enough. So you add back in the additional amount of them that are going to school, and that's about three percentage points. So instead of going to like 63, 64, we're now somewhere around 68. So for young men who normally would be working in, you know, or going to school, it has fallen sharply and there's been zero rebound in this zero rebound so it fell so we went yeah. from like let's call it 75 yeah. adjusting for schooling to 68 yeah with that big fall in the recession yeah. and then just flat just and, stayed at 68 yeah. and i'll go further it was roughly flat at 75 back to 1972 uh, you know you see the wiggles you'll always right. see recessions wiggles kind of stuff but not this step function where you know seven years after a recession, they're still staying out of the labor force, okay. and you know to me, that is the most puzzling. Where other groups, you know, thirty-five-year-olds, forty-year-olds have come back some. You know, so when we talked about earlier, the and, employment rate has stepped down, and they were and you, falling earlier, and too. they were falling earlier exactly. So you, we talked about you know the general decline, but even among age, there's compositional effects. Some age groups have more rebound than other, but this the young that have had very little. And you see very similar patterns from 26 to 29 year olds and then it kinda, kinda the 30 to early 40s kinda, kinda rebound and then people over the age of 40, 45, 48, 50, they've kind of permanently left as well. We could maybe, we have theories that way it could explain maybe movements into disability or something for, the, for these older groups. But for these younger groups, I'm trying to understand 
why this recession had such a permanent effect on them where they have an incentive to go work hard, they got a long life ahead of them, or go to school or do something, and they just haven't done that. And so, you know, I've been kicking around ideas that I don't know how to test completely yet, but I think might be there, and this is the next start of the research. This is exactly how we start. You see some data, you want to explain it, you write down some theories. We, I think I've done some of those things, but how do you test it? That's what I'm still kind of struggling now about whether... When you say test, kind of check whether it's... Check, working. exactly. That's what I meant, test it. Yeah, not like going to go and give somebody a test, but I mean, you know, the, the science part of our... Of the, uh, the continuation of the science. We kind of check predictions of these theories um, in the data. Like we talked about before, maybe so, using the, the variation between Las Vegas and, 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 and Detroit or things like so that. So when we've yeah. talked about this in, at other times, yeah. it's sort of this cycle of... Yeah. I got some data, that helps yeah. me build a theory. I then take the theory back to the data, yep. check it against the data, maybe revise my theory, yep. kind of cycle around yep. between yep. theory and data. And, uh, as an aside, it's the first thing you told me, it's a good science when I first stepped on campus 15 years ago, when you're talking about yeah. how to do papers, that's the way you kind of viewed papers and that yeah. kind of stuck with me. I have to believe that's the way you know I do research now uh, as a result of that. Um, so. You know, what I've been wondering is, has not working gotten more attractive for young people now than it did in the past? Okay, so let, let me let me be clear yeah. to try to make sure I understand, yeah. which is most of what we've talked about so far has been a decline in the extent to which people are working, yeah. driven by the opportunities for working getting yeah. less attractive. Yes. Now you want to say, well, there's an other side to the coin yeah. here, which is... Yeah, try to say maybe the attractiveness of not working has gotten better over time. And again, what I'm trying to get at is trying to explain maybe these age patterns in the data. Why it's showing up for 20-year-olds and less so for, for 35-year-olds. Okay, so, so you're saying, again, back to the theory yeah. of economic okay. incentives. Yeah. People make a decision as to whether to work or not. Yeah. by comparing the benefits from working from yeah. the, with the benefits of not, not working. working. Yes. The same way we make decision of anything else we do yeah. in our life. We, yeah. and this, is, this is how economists, mm -hmm. maybe people think we're crazy for thinking <laughs> this way, but we look at the world as, how do I make a decision? I compare the benefits with the cost. Yeah. And in this example, the cost is I give up what I could have done. Yeah. And this is your opportunity cost from before. So workers are gonna compare how much I gain from working with what I'm giving up by not being able to not work. Yep. And up till now, we've mostly focused on, well, if the returns yep. to working go down, more people are gonna yep. end up not working. Yep. Now you're saying, well, if the returns to not working go up, we'll end up in that same point. <laughs> exactly. Okay, exactly. so what do you mean by the returns to not work? I, you, know, so, you don't get paid not to work, so. No, but we get, we do things when we're not working that sometimes makes us happy. I mean, we get, we get happiness from lots of different things. You know, I go to work, maybe I earn some money, I buy, you know, a nice dinner, me and my wife go out, that makes me happy. Sometimes I don't work, okay? Because I don't like my, you know, boss or don't my job, can tell stories where working, you might have in, induced me to work. Nobody works for free. Some people do, but most people don't work for free. So when I'm not working, maybe I'm doing things like, you know, 
playing video games. That kind of makes me happy. It doesn't take a lot of my cost to do that. Me and my buddies all come under my house, get a six pack of beer, play video games. That makes me pretty happy and it's very cheap. It's not like I need a lot of, a lot of resources from that. So these activities that might be attractive to young people, things like social media and video games and these entertainment options, weren't there for previous generations as much. I mean, I don't know, you know, back when, when so I'm thinking when, when I'm 18, you know, early, you know, late 1980s, early 1990s, I didn't work. You know, I'm probably hanging out with my buddies. Okay, maybe I'm watching some TV. That gives me some utility, but now we could do so much more things interactive if you're 18, 20, 22 with your buddies, still with your buddies hanging out that you might not have done when, you know, previous, uh, previous uh, decades. So the advent of these goods might have raised the attractiveness of not working for people who have a taste for those types of activities. And I don't know if I, I could show this yet. I, I have an 11 year old, okay? I know unconstrained. If he, while I wasn't there, he might play video games for 22 hours a day nature would come in and make him sleep and I don't know if he would choose to eat. I, I don't know how that would happen. So I could see that there, there are people, you know, maybe young, younger that have these tastes that maybe because we didn't grow up with it, I still like playing a little video game here and there, but maybe I didn't grow up with it as much that it's not quite as, uh, you know, so, um, a part okay. of my structure. So I don't it's know not just video game. games. You, you would say if I was thinking about yeah. this theory, yeah. I would say there's a lot of things I can do to occupy my time other yeah. than work. Yeah, exactly. That provide at least some psychic benefit to me. Yeah. I probably have some other source of income, so yeah. I'm not going to starve yeah. to death here. Yeah. I'm, you know, live, live in a pretty too. rich country. Yeah, and live with your parents who might be pretty rich too. Well, we know that, yeah. right? We know the data tell us that if I'm somebody who doesn't work at all, I typically live with somebody I'm related to. Yeah. Whether it's yeah. my sister, whether it's my parents, it's yeah. You see children, it's somebody, <laughs> yeah. it's somebody. Yeah. And for these 20 year olds, they are living more with people, usually a relative, oftentimes their parents, but if not, maybe a grandparent or uh, a sibling um, in the day. So you see that has gone up dramatically from 2007 to today for this young group as well. Which okay. has been going on for a long. People who don't work kind of live with. But what you're you know? saying is, you know, there's, there's downsides to living yeah. with your parents. I think yeah. any 20 year or something yes, year old who lives with their parents will yeah. tell you their downsides. Yeah. But you're saying maybe those downsides are still there, but there's more upsides yeah. now. There's more stuff yeah. that you could actually do that's yeah. positive, yeah. not just have your parents yell at you for being a lazy yeah. bum and laying on a couch. Yeah. You get to play video games yeah. while you're laying on a couch. So, do the internet. So there are lots of, I mean, lots of other things we could communicate with people a little easier and cheaper. So I, than we could have in the past. And I stay more socially connected. Yeah. So if I value being socially connected, that may happen yeah. here. So, yeah. all right, so one theory you have then is maybe we have something going on in a household, let's call it. Yeah. And you know, Gary Becker obviously yeah. was a big influence on you, big yeah. influence on me, always taught us to think about the household as yeah. being at least as important as the market yeah. in terms of explaining human behavior. Yeah. Um, we've seen other changes in the household that drove people into the labor market. Yeah. For example, people talk about the decline in the number of children, helping yeah. push women into the labor market. Yeah. Maybe, 
the advent of consumer durables that might make exactly. women have, you basically, you know, you have a microwave and a vacuum cleaner, and then you have to, you know, if you want to tend to the house and cook, man or woman, it's a lot easier to do now than it was in the past, and that might have freed up more time that people could then Labor-saving devices yep, exactly. in the household, whether yep. they're, you know, washing machines. Yep. I mean, the wash used to be a major yep. undertaking. Yep. Now even I can do the wash, yeah. you know, open the door, throw it in, and push the button. So I, yep. can, I can even do the wash these days. But, um, so we had this story, it's not yeah. a new one. Yeah. Although in those cases, it was operating the opposite direction. Exactly. It was household, new things that were coming online in the household yeah. were actually pushing people into the yeah. market. You now have this yeah. heretical idea that somehow the new things coming on the market might actually be pulling people into the household. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's think about, like Gary would have done it, there might be multiple uses of our time. We could work, we might do things at the house, in the household level, for which, you know, a change in the price of that good, okay, might ask, make us do less of it. So think about, again, washing machines. So there's two, there's two ways I could wash my clothes. With my time, or the washing machine's time. So when the price of the washing machine goes down, I might say, hmm, maybe I'll more likely to buy a washing machine, and then I could use less of my time. So it's almost like the production of clean clothes, it's kind of a trade-off between whether I'm gonna get it with the washing machine or my own time. They're, they're kind of substitutes. I could put my own time in, or I could put the washing machine's time in. Right. And so when the price of washing machines change, maybe that tells me, I could use less of my own time and free up more time to do other things like work. Yeah, okay. but also, I mean, you got to buy that washing machine, so maybe you have to work to buy the right, washing right, machine right. too. Yeah, That's exactly. true too. That goes exactly. the same yeah, way. Same way, same way. And then there's other goods like playing golf, okay, or watching TV, okay, where the price of the, or playing video games, okay, where my time is necessary for me to engage in those actions. So. As much as, you know, I like you, I can't watch you play video games and get the same utility as maybe playing myself. Or I say, hey, Kevin, I'm going to pay you to play six hours of video games, and I'm not going to get the same yeah. happiness out of it. I used to always tell my class that, you know, one of the limits on, you know, ability yeah. of men to change their labor supply uh -huh. in response to the wage is you can't hire people to watch TV. Watch, exactly, it's the same kind it of thing. It doesn't work <laughs> Exactly, it's well. not the I, technology. So when the price of TVs change, maybe that says I want to you know, watch more TVs relative to other things, but I still need my time. So in this sense, and maybe if the TV's nicer, then I might want to actually invest more of my time into that. So my time in a TV yeah. is a compliment. It's a compliment, exactly. So then, you know, certain price changes, like the price of washing machines go down, that actually could free up time done at the home to allocate to other things, maybe watching more TV and work more, maybe both of those things go up. When the price of TVs go down relative to washing machines or work, you know, the relative price, then you might say, well, maybe I wanna watch more TV, and that absorbs my time, and then I do less washing machines, I have less clean clothes, which my son at 11 would probably choose if, he had unconstrained, you know, TV watching and video games, and less time for work. So that's exactly the, you know, different goods have these different prices. And you can measure it by, in various ways, yep. by looking at how you time use. How you use things. your time. And you know, I've done this in some of my other. I was just going to ask you about yeah. that. You, you, you've, you've addressed some issues related to consumption and time use. Yeah. 
And I, I really like that work, so I want to try to bring that yeah. out a little bit. And that has changed, hopefully, the way many economists have looked so. at some issues. Yeah. I think they got it wrong. Yeah. And Before, your analysis yeah. actually pointed out how we know they got yeah. it wrong. Yeah. So why don't you tell me a little yeah. bit about that? So, you know, it was more less on now trends in how people work over time, but more trends in people how people spend over their life, okay? So, you know, we could measure what you and I purchase in the store. So there's lots of people who've done this. Hey, Kevin, what are you buying at 40? Somebody who looks like Kevin when they're 50, someone who looks like Kevin so, they're 60, and you could kind of trace out, we call it a profile, of people spending over their lifetime. So let, let me, let me yep. make clear. So we're, we may be following the same person, yep. we may be looking at different people, but the yep. whole idea is we're trying to look at a life cycle pattern Perfect. of consumption. Yep. So jumping ahead a little bit, people had noticed, I think, yep. that when people retire, yeah. there's a pretty big drop in their consumption. Exactly. And how would they interpret so it? So they that? would interpret that one of two ways. It was kind of a behavioral kind of story that people just don't plan for retirement. So they woke up one morning, people are doing what they do. They don't know retirement's coming. And or they, they ignore get, it. They know it's coming and ignore, ignore it. Ignore it, whatever. And then they don't save up a lot of money. It's kind of like the grasshopper and the ant in the story. Winter comes along, retirement comes along. Too many grasshoppers. Exactly. Okay. And spending falls. That's kind of story one. Story two is that all retirements were associated with some unplanned bad shock. That when you retired, it was because you maybe got ill and that both caused a bad shock for you and caused you to retire. So this, so, this would be somebody who was not prepared for retirement exactly. either way. Either because way, because they didn't have the interest. Exactly. Retirement was a surprise, in which case not surprising <laughs> you're not prepared. Exactly. Or it wasn't a surprise, but they, for whatever reason, just didn't prepare. They were exactly. a grasshopper. In exactly. And so, so what we do is kind of say, well, something does change at the time of retirement, even for those of us who plan and those of us who don't get shocks, which is the opportunity cost of our time. Again, just a fancy way. I have a lot of time on my hand. So in a world where I have a lot of time on my hand, now I'm thinking about whether I want to wash my clothes by hand or wash my clothes with a new washing machine or take, take out food, which I used to do when I was working, or make a meal myself using the inputs and kind of cook it myself. So, Both of, you know, when I'm retired, I have lots of extra time. And if I have that extra time and I'm more willing to wash my clothes and more willing to cook my meals, I could then, as we talked about, substitute my time for other market expenditures. So, okay, so let me think yep. about it. I mean, there are a couple yep. things seem key to me in your, in your interpretation. Yep. One is, some true measure of consumption yeah. isn't falling as much as we think. Exactly. The amount I purchase in the store may be going down, yeah. but what I'm ultimately getting, whether it's a meal or entertainment yeah. Yeah. or whatever, may be declining much less or maybe not declining at all. Exactly. It's how I produce it. I switched from producing my goods. I was working. Yeah. I didn't, I had, yeah. the way I think about it, I had a lot of money, not much time. Yeah. How do I do things? Well, I use all the money and I don't have much time, so I don't yeah. use much time. Yeah. I then retire. Yeah. I have lots of time, yeah. maybe not as much income flowing in, yeah. but that's okay because yeah. I can use the time to do what I used to do yeah. with money. Exactly. And so, again, the way I used to tell this when I'm, you know, giving this paper or talking about it, I used to pay you to cook a lasagna for me. So I'm working, I don't have much time, I love lasagna, 
say, hey, somebody from the market, make a lasagna for me, and I pay for that lasagna. Okay. Now I'm retired, I have my own time. So I basically buy some of the raw ingredients and use my own time to make it, which is cheaper than paying you to make the lasagna for me. But I'm still eating lasagna. So what we do in this paper is it say, okay, instead of looking at what people spend at the retirement, let's actually kind of measure what people are consuming in units, lasagnas. <laughs> and if we could track the amount of lasagnas that were going in, and we do this. And there are data out there where people report everything they eat. Not everything they pay, but everything they consume. Right. In, we see food spending fall, and this is people who would really get worried about this. If you're cutting back spending, and the first spending you're cutting back is the food, not things like luxuries, but like food itself, you're really unprepared or you got a really bad shock. That's what people, yeah. people, be careful here. Yeah. I mean, it's important to say, because I think you're right, yeah. but people previously had said, well, geez, if this is showing up as less food, we know these people are worse exactly. off. This is, nobody's gonna consume less food. Exactly. Just, they gotta be a lot poorer effectively. So yeah. there had to be a shock, either a shock of ill-prepared or right. a shock of a surprise. Yeah. Either way though, they must be much worse off yes. afterward than they were before. That's the only way food would fall. Exactly. And you're and saying food didn't, food didn't really fall. fall. If you measure what people are eating, actually consuming their mouth, it's flat. If anything, maybe a little uptick, okay? Because the relative price of food, if you're making it with your own time, okay. it might have actually gone up. And you could track this in the data. And then you go and ask people what they're doing with their time. Say, hey, Kevin, how much do you cook when you're working? I don't cook at all. Kevin, how much do you cook when you're retired? I cook a lot. Huh. We know there is some return to cooking right. this. And you see that, and then and you could put this like a puzzle. Put the pieces together and say, look at these people are behaving like our theories would say if they have this outside option of deciding whether to, you know, cook their food versus buy their food, clean their house or pay somebody else to clean their house. So you see these margins of adjustment. And even more so, it's only these categories that are amenable uh -huh. to this home production where you see falls. No one ever looked at that. They looked at total spending and said, people are spending less. But our money on like entertainment goods, travel, yeah. go up yeah. during the recession. Now, the post-retirement. Post-retirement. Let's talk about that. So, because yeah. another side to your research yeah. is to say, well, for example, you see people playing more golf after they've yeah, retired. Yeah. And golf's not a cheap sport. Right. So you would have thought that if this was really just an income shock, yeah. that retirement was just, oh my God, my yeah. income's fell off the table. Yeah. Well, how am I golf playing more golf? Golf games are going up and food expenditures going down. You're like, huh, how is that going through? And then you kind of look at the time that people are putting in and then actually measure the amount that people are actually consuming. It's not changing at all. Everything makes sense. And that's one of those papers where you kind of use it through the lens of theory and then you go and put the data together. Some data people haven't looked at, but you don't have to do much with it. It's not like you're, you know, doing anything fancy. It's just saying when you put this together, the puzzle pieces kind of fit and it and it felt right. And I think that's I think you're right. I think people now think about the way people consume over their life cycle a little bit differently then. But there was a whole the cottage industry of Huge. people trying to explain Huge. why people were so stupid. Or and why drive policy. People... It, was try, it was having influence on policy of people trying to help people to save more for retirement or help people to insure for retirement. We've got to teach people something. And we might. And, and I want to be clear. I'm not saying this isn't the case. You know, I'm explaining to every person in the economy. But for the average person or the bulk of the people, 
this theory kind of does works like we we thought it would. I guess that's a lesson that yeah. I have taken away from my yeah. years of doing this and watching other people yeah. do it is that if you think about it and you really get back to the basics saying what should what would I expect people to do if I really try to see what's going on the world usually falls much more into line even when it first looks so perplexing exactly. when you saw it so whether it was the recession in the post-recession trends, which seems so anomalous yeah, yeah. before you really dig in and think about the underlying economics, whether it's people's decisions of whether they go to school or not, or whether it's this post-retirement consumption, seems like you keep telling us a little bit of economics. Maybe a lot yeah, of economics, depending on yeah. how you think about yeah. it. But a little bit in the sense of it's the core part of what we do in economics. Yeah. It's really about yeah. incentives. It's really about markets. It's really about how people make adjustments yeah. when things change. Yeah. That the world that maybe seems so hard to understand really is a lot easier to understand. That was perfect. That was a perfect assessment. Ah, that's awesome <laughs> because, I mean, I think that seems to be a reoccurring theme yeah. when I talk to people about yeah. economics yeah. that you know, there's a there's a lot a lot of there there. Yeah. Doesn't mean we can explain everything. Doesn't mean there still aren't a lot of mysteries. Yeah. You know, take your 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 theory of what's going on in in, in the household. Yeah. I think we can see how it flows from yeah. economics. The testing is yet to be done to yeah. see whether that theory. But the the other yeah. ones you've talked about are are solid theories, but also ones that have been tested and yeah. seem to have withstood the tests that are there so far. And going back to where we started. That's not too different between micro and macro. We're both interested in how people are spending, how people are making their consumption decisions, how people are working. And at the end of the day, you got to come back and you write down models where people have incentives and there's markets that are kind of guiding decisions. And whether that's micro or macro, whether it's you or it's me, at the end of the day, you know, especially around here, this is. Uh, this is kind of the same kind of paradigms that, that we're talking about. All right, I'm much more willing to call you a microeconomist than I'm willing to accept the fact that I'm a macroeconomist. But I'll agree with you that we can both be in the same camp. I so agree. thanks a lot, That's Eric. Always, this has been great. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.